financial access de-risking still haunts the economic uh, community throughout the globe. And it's something that we in AML, CTF, have tried to grapple with for quite a number of years. Today, we sit down with Amit Sharma, who is the CEO of a company called Finclusive. Uh, Amit's background is uh, detailed in that he was both in the private and the public sector, was at the Treasury Department as a senior advisor uh, in the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence at Treasury. He's been in the Peace Corps. He's created other companies. His background is perfect for the conversation we're about to have uh, regarding what is the issue, what can be done, and how technology plays a crucial part in uh, opening up avenues for those that um, are so hurtled by regulatory oversight and by financial institution fears, if you will. So sit back and enjoy my conversation with Amit Sharma. One of the biggest challenges for the AML community, as we both know, is the, the difficulty of a number of entities, individuals, companies, categories of customers that for a variety of reasons cannot get financial access. Your, um, your particular company, but you, based on your previous life at Treasury, the estimates, uh, I mean, you indicate, and, and, I, and I know this is true, the, the estimates are almost 3.5 billion people around the globe have difficulty, either they're underserved or not served at all. That's Let's talk about what are the drivers for that? Because there's so many different reasons, but they all, I would argue, revolve around some similar themes. A absolutely. So um, it's important to note that the plight of the, quote, underserved or, or excluded marketplace, if you will, uh, are not only just individuals, but also entities. And it's also important to understand that while not all, I don't want to paint the picture that all of the underserved or excluded are due to risk and compliance related reasons, but they, but many of them intersect the AML compliance arena. So uh, some of those numbers, right? Two and a half to three and a half billion people on the planet lack access to basic financial services or are completely excluded. They, the reasons for that run the gamut from in many frontier and, and emerging markets, the lack of a discernible registered identification. And that implicates not just financial access, but health access, education access, telecom access, and the like. Um, the, the, to more sophisticated, lack of a credit history mm -hmm. denies a lot of organizations and individuals in the traditional financial marketplace. That's exacerbated by the fact that small and medium enterprise is largely a personal credit issue. Right? And yet we still treat this categorically as an institutional credit issue. So if you are in Africa and you're being assessed as to your credit worthiness by a bank to get a small business loan, you're not getting assessed in terms of your business, you're getting assessed personally, your household. But if no one in that household has had a bank balance or has ever taken on any uh, uh, loan or other credit product, they're not going to build that history. And without that history, then you are often denied by more traditional marketplace financial intermediaries because they don't have the wherewithal, the system, the know-how to, to really understand your risk. So when you then look at the broader AML 
compliance-related issues, as we've talked about many times before, all of it can be boiled down to one central question. Do you know your customer? Do you know their source of funds? Do their use of funds, their day-to-day economic footprint and activity, et cetera? Those are the exact questions that a product or lending officer needs to ask as well. And too often in traditional institutions, the risk and compliance framework capability and toolkit is segregated entirely from the front office of an institution. And they're often looked at culturally as the office of no, as the office of categories and box my risk. And so, and, and then with the lack of engagement with the front line, you're sitting on unbelievable business intelligence value that's never translated to the front line of the business. And then the final aspect is that when we talk about two and a half, three and a half billion people, now remember, even in the US, the quote unquote richest country on the planet, right? In the United States, almost a half of individuals struggle with basic budgeting, finance, expense management. Greater than 50% of the United States cannot deal with an unintended expense of $400 or more. That's a car event, a health event that can bankrupt people. That in and of itself exacerbates their profile to traditional uh, financial intermediaries, which then force them into the economic equation of, do I continue to maintain that kind of customer that's just going to cost me more to service for AML risk and, and compliance purposes and then some, and then just say, you know what, it's just not it's just not worth it for me to do business with those organizations or individuals. So um, that challenge is, is clearly understood in the U.S. And yeah. We'll talk a bit about that. Is it also globally the same thing? Because you know from your, from your previous life at Treasury, you have a number of jurisdictions that have similar but not the same yes. oversight. Here, it's very comprehensive, multiple regulators, you know, frequent exams, all that sort of stuff, and everything that you mentioned right. clearly is the challenge. Is it the same or similar globally? Because the, these three, four, five billion—they're not coming to the U.S. Obviously, it's all over the all over the globe. So this issue seems, from what you're saying, to be global. But what are the other? What 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 are what is happening in the other jurisdictions that might be dissimilar to this? Just that they. Yeah, you, you know your customer thing doesn't even get to where it needs to be because it's the the oversight is not as comprehensive. So ex- explain outside the U.S. What are they the, the same reasons for the lack of access and inclusion? Yeah, no, that's a great great question, and and I think that um, it's nuanced in two or three different ways. One, uh, as you rightly point out, jurisdictional oversight varies, right, from minimal in some jurisdictions to maximal maximal in in other jurisdictions like the United States. And that poses two distinct problems. One, how do organizations that are trying to do the right thing in jurisdictions that have minimal oversight, the taint that they have in jurisdictions with maximal oversight is broad brush. So any organization, even if they're trying to do the right thing, try to be registered as a money service business, for example, try to be certified as a deposit institution, often are incapable of getting that regulatory approval in their local jurisdiction. And by virtue of that, they're seen by U.S. institutions and U.S. regulators as therefore non-compliant or difficult for U.S. institutions to engage. So is it a resource issue that a lot of these entities just don't have access and that's why technology becomes particularly important? It's a resource issue. It's a um, expertise issue for sure. Um, If we look at even the work that we did in some of the emerging and frontier markets that were of, quote, national security 
import to the United States, your Iraqs, your Afghanistans, where you had a capacity issue that you had to build up. And then you had to go to the private sector and say, by the way, there's some new rules of the road that you as a money service business, you as a hawala or a money remitter now need to comply with that they never complied with before. And now you implicate <clears throat> rule of law issues. How do you prosecute and adjudicate cases? There's a lot of training behind that. So there were so many other ancillary pieces that impact that. And yet this was a country, take Afghanistan, for example. Afghanistan was massive priority in a post 9-11 world for a whole slew of national security reasons, uh, development reasons. And we were in tandem trying to grow their anti-money laundering counter-terrorist financing uh, regime capability, legislatively, regulatorily. We helped stand up their financial intelligence unit. We sponsored it into Egmont, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Do they have the capacity then to understand what suspicious transaction reporting is? Does the private sector understand what a suspicious transaction report is, what it's meant to be, and then the, the facility to send it in, in otherwise non-tech-enabled environments? And today, to your point, Technology allows us to cross that chasm right. in ways that we never could before, arguably in the last 10 years, but certainly in the last five, three to five years. Let's talk about one of the primary rationales for lack of access is risk. Actual, in some cases, perceived risk. Yeah. Um, MSBs, correspondent banks, charities, all have different sort of risk elements to them, and that's caused the reaction from the institutions, but also the reaction is in part because of the oversight and trying to appease your, your regulator. Yes. So talk a bit about your experience on actual versus perceived risk. First, from the standpoint of the institution, better understanding it. The separate issue is, can I sell you the regulator that I've done my jobs? That's a separate question. That's right. But the first issue, now obviously there's risk assessments and all those sorts of things, but somebody brings you in to hey, we're trying to figure out this client base. We have these four or five entities. We've done some research, but we're not sure what are actual risks and what are perceived. What sort of recommendations do you make generally? Again, we're talking about different entities, so yeah. just very high level. So the unfortunate reality, when we look at sectors of quote-unquote high compliance risk or high terrorist financing risk, the word terrorist in there is what everyone therefore jumps to the boundary condition, right. right? Were charities and have charities been exploited for terrorist financing and other illicit purposes? Yes. Have money services businesses been exploited for terrorist financing purposes? Yes. Did in a pre 9-11 and then post 9-11 world, did we look at those and say, you know what, these are vulnerable sectors and now we've put them on the map? Absolutely. What's the unintended consequence, right? The unintended consequence is we have taken actual uh, organizations that have been either exploited, tainted, uh, been negligent, what have you. And we've then unfortunately labeled a, the entire sector as being, quote unquote, to your point, rightly, high perceived risk when they may not in fact be high actual risk. But if the United States Treasury Department and the US State Department through its INCSA report and the like, say money services businesses are themselves particularly vulnerable to terrorist financing exploitation, any traditional institution that is being supervised by those regulators is gonna make the obvious uh, you know, balancing question of, do I take on that business and have to go the extra mile or two to showcase the regulator that I've undertaken their appropriate risk assessment? 
And it's much easier, therefore, to just say, I'm going to, quote, de-risk, right. which is, it's, but I hate the word de-risking because that's the business we're all in. We're trying to de-risk. We're trying to actually lower and mitigate risk. What we have instead defaulted to um, categorically in, in the traditional covered institution space is we manage to perceived risk almost categorically, not to actual risk. Therefore, the Girl Scouts of America are bucketed at the, as the same as a campaign doing Syrian refugee assistance right through institutions in the Middle East, for example, when they're radically different risk, but they're both nonprofit organizations or money remitters that are doing cross-border payments for largely immigrant flows between Mexico and the U.S. They're bucketed in the same as East Africa remittances that have tainted, for example, Somali-related remittances. In the latter case, you can't simply just say, well, let's provide a safe harbor or let's, why? Because they are inherently higher risk because of a lack of information, the lack of verification validation tools, lack of on-the-ground presence, and to your earlier question, the the less expertise and overall governance structures in in those jurisdictions to actually oversee and then implement their own AML CFT regime. So what that requires us to is to realize two undeniable facts that we cannot escape today. And this is not a, it it may happen tomorrow or the next day. We are already there. Financial services and the provisioning of, the storing of, and the transferring of value between two counterparts can now happen without any jurisdiction knowing. We live in that world today. And the second reality is with a little bit of software, most organizations on the planet can become a financial intermediary, right? Now, if those two are true, how do you put the, both the culture and the mechanisms of risk management and compliance into institutions that were never conceived of as financial intermediaries. They never had the culture of compliance. They never had the technology to do so. They were never conceived of that way. But we need to overlay that AML stack to that large area. Where I'm excited is because that affords us a massive opportunity from an inclusion perspective. Those various organizations do touch the most uh, frontier and emerging markets. Technology and 88, 90, 92% cell phone and smartphone penetration rates in the most remote reaches of the planet now put, put a financial intermediary in your pocket. That's a massive opportunity from an inclusion perspective. And so now the idea is how do you take advantage of that technology and overlay the associated know your customer, ongoing monitoring, transaction analytics to that framework so as to be both the compliance overlay and importantly, the bridge into main, mainstream banking. And the importance of that allows us greater transparency and a decrease in that overall security risk. So technology plays a really important piece here because it truly is agnostic to jurisdiction. However, regulation continues to be jurisdiction-based. And so we are now applying differing, varied regulatory capabilities capacity into a what, what is a single financial marketplace. You know, we talk about in the U.S. at least the um, the years since the creation of the Bank Secrecy Act. And yeah. Some people incorrectly say, "Well, it started in 1970." Well, that's technically true. It didn't really start to '86, 86. the Money Laundering Control Act. But right. it's been around for quite a long period of time, and so it's been sort of a patchwork of additional layers of law with no reduction. You know, it's, that's right. and I remember late 80s, early 90s, every two years, massive drug bill, anti-drug bill. That's and there was always money laundering components in there. And obviously, after 9-11, with the Patriot Act and all the changes there. So to your overall point, 
we're living under jurisdictional requirements that have never been tailored to right. this to this new world. So if I'm a new new worldish entity and I need you or somebody else's help, how open are they? I mean, they're open because to some degree because hey, we want it, we, we want the service. And so if we're going to do more compliance, we'll get this service. But what I have found, certainly right after the Patriot Act, when we added requirements in some, not all, on real estate, yes. precious metals dealers, insurance, a lot of balking, a lot of complaining. That's right. um, some of them have come along. Some of them still don't have what I would argue they need to have. Um, what has been your experience with and you can say this even with the fintech entities, frankly, because I know Absolutely. well. There's some of the bigger, more well-known fintechs. They have AML people because they brought them in from banks. That's right. And we deal with a lot of them. That's right. But a new company that's there—I don't mean just to make money in a negative sense—but they want to hit the ground running. They want yeah. to do all this stuff, and then they're told, "We need these compliance requirements. We need to report or identify suspicious activity." Right. What is your—I don't mean selling point from a product standpoint, but what's your selling point? This is a smart thing you need to consider and in most cases embrace. Three fundamental reasons. One, regulators are coming after you. Full stop. Regulators are increasingly, not just in the U.S., but globally, are increasingly looking at the non-bank and technology space and saying, hmm, you guys are providing some modicum of financial intermediation and therefore should be regulated for uh, compliance uh, and financial crimes compliance broadly. So... Do it because it may not happen today or next year, but very soon thereafter, regulators will be scrutinizing you like they do uh, banks. And that's already begun. So that's one. You kind of have to have it. Second, to your point, that's right. A lot of the technology companies are like, I want to hit the ground running. I want to move forward. One thing that technology companies and uh, uh, new entrants get right is that they have the consumer and the user top of mind. So that means how do I make the interface very simple, very fast, very effective? How do I make it uh, uh, seamless for you to onboard and engage my product or service? And often these more antiquated KYC compliance uh, uh, due diligence, monitoring, transaction tracking, screening gets in the way of the user experience. And therefore, a lot of technology companies say, look, I'm going to get rid of a lot of those cumbersome pieces if it disrupts my engagement with the consumer. So banks and financial houses, traditional houses, have a lot to learn from tech companies in terms of the user engagement, companies or individuals, right? And those tech companies, by, by nature, therefore, have an ability to reach to communities in ways that financial institutions just don't. Therein lies another opportunity from an inclusion perspective. Third, compliance is often redundant, inefficient, and uh, cost ineffective. You walk into a bank, they do the KYC. Two months later, you want a mortgage. You walk into the same bank and they do all of that uh, stuff again because it's sitting siloed in another department. Three months later, you've got a, a kid going to college. You want a student loan. Walk in. Same things. The same institution. And they have the data. They have right. all the right, data. Right. And the front line is complaining that the back, you know, the risk and compliance department, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, what a burden. They are sitting in unbelievable amounts of data. 
And by the way, mandated to collect it, right? Mandated to know you. And yet they don't leverage. So the, the systems are not interoperable. They don't share the data uh, in ways that can be a good business intelligence value. You buy three products on Amazon. You know, you, you they know your buying history. Oh, yeah. They're catered to. They're, they're leveraging data to understand how you can then consume more of their product. And traditional financial institutions don't do that. New technology companies really really do do that. Have have you, the consumer, the user up front, the client up front, and how does every part of your engagement inform them to add value to you? We need that same mentality in risk compliance. And that's why, um, quick anecdote, when I was leaving the U.S. Treasury Department, um, several of my colleagues that were former heads of OFAC and FinCEN now running compliance shops at these big, big institutions, and two of them I sat down with and I said, um, what are you doing to change the notion or the current reality that, that risk management compliance is a burdensome back office cost center? And how do you change it into a value-added profit center? And they both looked at me like I had 17 heads. <laughs> no, we don't. I said, well, you're mandated to collect all this information. You don't share it as a as business critical business intelligence value? That's criminal. So we got to change that ethos. And then the second piece is, Multiple point solutions. How many times you got banks that go to what? The average is seven to 10 different providers. One for KYC, one for monitoring, one for enhanced diligence, one for social and adverse media screening, one for transaction monitoring, yada, yada, yada. What if we condensed it right. and put it into a single workflow? And that's what new technology companies want. They want a single API connection. I can get my smorgasbord of, uh, of, of activities in one workflow, one contract. Here's, and I don't disagree with anything you just said. Here's, here's the challenge. You're right. The banks aren't compiling that data together. The regulators, in some cases, are preventing them from doing that because what will happen is you'll say, we want to use this information for mortgages that we're using right. for whatever. No, you can't do that because right. they're looking at the letter of the regulation. So right. so there's been some positive comments from the comptroller and the FDIC chair. We yes. want to encourage innovation, all that kind of This, to me, and I am not equipped to talk about the specificity like you can, but this seems to me to be a key part of it. So if the banks want to do that, because to your point, it's not always no, no, no. Here's how we get to yes, right? That's right. Um, this is why we're doing it. Become more efficient. Do all those things that you mentioned. But the regulators can't be saying, well, wait a second. Right. And, and one of the age-old issues I remember is when you wanted to go to a new system, the issue was, well, when you're running parallel systems, what are you going to miss and, and we may watch you because you might miss something. You know, give me a break. If that's you're going to miss, a SAR is going to be 30 days late because you missed something. I think that's problematic. Um, let me do this. Let's take a quick break. When I come back, what I'd like to ask you is the clear benefits of financial inclusion. Jobs. Yes. Uh, funds, that sort of thing. And, and that's right. we'll, we'll talk about that. So as we uh, finish this conversation, um, you know, this issue, sadly, is going to be with us quite a while, even though it's it's resonating much more than it was four or five years ago. So yeah. a lot of people talking about it. Uh, you know, Congress has a, and I'm typically cynical about studies, but if you get the right stakeholders, I think they can be valuable. There's a study uh, required uh, on de-risking in the House pass bill. I know the Senate drafts that are floating around have the same thing. But I think it would be useful to talk about the the benefits of inclusion, what, and I'll sort of be counterintuitive for my first comment because I'm curious about your thoughts here. One of the negatives is um, with, uh, with de-risking, besides the obvious, 
financial institutions makes the decision that you just talked about. They get out. We can't handle risk too high. We're not even going to try. So what happens? That entity goes to a smaller institution or it goes Hawala or someplace that's more problematic. What is interesting is the regulators are then going around the country and all a lot of these panels that I'm, I've been part of and moderated, where they say one of the things we want to tell the audience is if you've received a de-risked entity from a larger bank and you're a small bank, we don't know that you can handle this. So you need to be particularly careful. So I'm thinking, what are you doing? So in one case, you or your examiners have forced the large institution to say, we're not doing it. And then a smaller bank sees dollar signs, unfortunately. They go, wow, this entity, we, we've never had this, these kind of funds come in. And then the regulators are on them as well. So the other part of this, the negative part of lack of access and de-risking is what do you do with this entity that's been characterized as risky with everybody? Uh, it would seem to me like the old law enforcement comments used to always be, we want banks to bank not criminal enterprises, but high-risk entities because we, we feel comfortable that, for the most part, they're managing it. If they don't go to a traditional bank, there's a problem. So what's, what's your thoughts about that? I want to ask you about job creation in a second. What's your thoughts about that? Sort of the regulators, um, I don't know, there's, there's sort of all over the place on this. This is not just on the banks, and yeah. some of it is, yeah. but some of it's on them. Getting We're getting very mixed messages. Uh, first off, I'm an equal opportunity antagonizer, so I'm happy to go after both regulators and banks. And both have a role to play. Both have not done enough. Uh, uh, absolutely. That's absolutely right. First off, there's, a, there's a, the micro-related issues and then the macro-related issues to your, to your specific question. The micro-related issues are organizations that are otherwise tainted or uh, now seen as high-perceived risk don't get that fair shot. And there's an unfortunate bias ongoing between the bulge bracket money center banks and the rest of the pack. Now, you've been at ABA. You know, the vast majority are those smaller institutions. Exactly. Sure. And the vast majority are the ones actually in community knowing who their constituencies are. Sure. Absolutely. And yet they roll up to these larger institutions that over the course of how the evolution of the universal banking model has, has grown, everyone's going to one of those big six, big seven institutions. That's a problem because it disintermediates and you have credit officers, lending officers sitting at these institutions that are on the 30th floor of a, of a, of a high rise in New York, making credit decisions for mortgages in Bakersfield, California. Right. And that's, that, that disintermediation actually increases risk, doesn't decrease it. The de-risking phenomenon, you look at the international correspondent bank pieces, right? Today, the reality is that if a, and I'm just making this up, but it's a real use case, if a Nigerian correspondent bank loses that access to a, to the U.S. institution. That Nigerian correspondent bank then gets a correspondent relationship with a Lebanese bank, that gets a correspondent relationship with a French bank, that has a correspondent relationship with that same U.S. institution. And somehow we're supposed to think of that as now less risky. It's actually much more risky. You know it less. Uh, to comply with some of the issues like travel rule and other things, you can't see your ultimate ultimate beneficiary. And yet that was the whole purpose. So these are some of the micro examples, because at the end of the day, the benefits on inclusion, and this, this may preview a little bit of the job creation question, today, 90 plus percent of job creation on the planet is small and medium enterprise. If less than 1% of small and medium enterprise in the emerging markets have access to working capital, 
that is death for many, many institutions, households, communities, right? So we have to be much more open to financial access, not more closed. Secondly, the whole intention of, and the whole ability for the U.S. to have wielded the biggest stick in the financial enforcement domain is because of the power of the U.S. economy and the power of the U.S. dollar. But we too often use that asset as a blunt force law enforcement instrument and not the inclusion instrument it can be. Imagine instead of focusing on sanctioning uh, the country of Venezuela, we also provide conduits for small and medium enterprise to get a U.S. dollar denominated FDIC insured account. That not only wins hearts and minds, it is a humanitarian objective that intersects directly with our national security objective. It's more sustainable. We have more transparency and security because to your point, they will find services elsewhere, but they will be in the gray and the dark and you can't see them. And we're now leveraging the very basis of our, of our strength, our economic resilience and the power of the US market and the economy and giving that access. And we can do so today because finance and commerce is jurisdictionless. They, you, you can now put folks in LATAM in U.S. accounts. You can put fintechs in Africa in U.S. accounts. You can give them that on and off ramp and, and do so in a way that actually preserves security. That was the inherent intention in a post-9-11 uh, national security uh, set of objectives. And yet we overvalued, overleveraged, and overused the enforcement tools and underinvested in the development tools. So we are presented with this, I would argue, a false binary choice between inclusion and financial system integrity. They're actually two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you actually mentioned that at the conference uh, last month. So let's, let's end on this note. Um, given what you've said, the, the entities that are impacted the most are MSBs. You said 70% of MSBs are hurt some fashion by de-risking. FinTech, crypto companies, uh, charities. Yep individuals. They're all, for one reason or another, um, impacted by sort of quick decisioning, either by the financial institution on its own or the financial institution, their fear of what their regulator might say. There's a lot of benefits from inclusion, obviously, being part of the economic engine. But one of the ones that you talk about, uh, you know, whether it's from the digital platforms that you work with, the compliance responses that you're able to orchestrate is the creation of jobs. Yes. So how, how, I mean, there's obvious reasons why if you have access and you have more ability investments, I get all that, but how does it, from your view, create jobs and um, what can financial institution, AML people that are listening to this say, you know, when they go to the business side, look, we want to be correct about giving you our risk view but we also want to make it happen. We don't want to be, as we used to say in the compliance, doctor, no. Yep. We want a doctor, how can we do it That's right. sort of thing. And so if part of the result is going to be not just a good client, but job creation, how does that occur? Absolutely. So the first off gets back to an earlier theme that we talked about. One is the compliance department, the risk management departments need to see and realize that there is more data accessible to them than ever before. We have the ability to understand uh, profiles of individuals and institutions and households in some of the most remote emerging markets today than we did before. Through our more analytics tools being applied, um, cash flow for credit scoring, for example, today that are proving out to be much more capable 
of understanding your personal credit profile and therefore risk mm -hmm. than we have in the past. So we have now uh, organizations like FICO and others thinking about there's actually much greater data access and therefore and analytics that we can apply to this. The third is then the compliance and risk management departments understanding that they're sitting on that data, turning around and forcing that conversation into the profit uh, side of the business, into the product side of the business. And I think that needs to occur as well. And at the end of the day, if more individuals have access to capital to start and grow their business, to maintain their business, to get more education so they can uh, 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 get uh, higher paying uh, wage jobs, et cetera, financial access is imperative. So that's a big part of the inclusion story. The, the, the number of institutions, even in the United States, that are job accretive are small and medium enterprise, right? By far, not your bulge bracket, you know, top five, top 10%. The Dow 30 is not where right. jobs are being created. The, the, where jobs are being created are the mom and pop shops, the entrepreneurial ventures, et cetera. So we need to be much more nimble in serving that constituency. Which, like I said before, often is an individual risk uh, question, not an institutional risk question. And so the more individuals we can get in the system, the better. Now, the reason I pair that, and this is the last statement I'll make, and why access, therefore, through this technological development is, is essential in understanding in anyone can be a financial services entity, is that peer-to-peer -peer engagement is growing like wildfire. Mm -hmm. So my ability to transact with you, understand you as a customer or client to me, as a counterpart to me, as a vendor to me, and the ability to now transact with you directly exists today in ways that never existed before. So that also means that I have more granularity and more touches on you. I have to go through fewer intermediaries right. to both check and validate you and ensure that the funds I send to you actually get to you. So the, the coupling of individual access and engagement, access to capital, uh, the ability to store that value securely, a la LATAM in Africa, where you have 1,000% inflation rates, they're saying, where am I going to just hold value? And then the ability to then transact in that value safely and securely all exists today, and we need regulation to catch up to that reality. And so I think this is actually the, the heyday. This is where risk and compliance can really actually turn the corner into an ethos of inclusion and commercial growth opportunity. Uh, and the more folks that are in jobs, the more, more entities in emerging markets that are accessing the dollar market, the more products and services we sell. The more products and services we sell, we can unlock literally a $1.4 trillion if you turn on 2 to 5% of the world's unbanked into the, into the financial marketplace. You, you've got $1.2, $1.4 trillion of unlocked uh, potential. So the key, it seems to me, is getting you and your folks... Uh, in front of, and I know you're doing this on your own anyway, in front of the regulators and policymakers. So we make these adjustments. So similar to what we were able to do with the Consortium for Financial Access, yeah. you are working on, uh, lack of a better term, a paper um, that's uh, going to address a lot of this. I know it's not complete yet, but can you give us sort of a preview of what you're sure. working on in addition to obviously what your company is doing? Yeah, so in um, in recognition that this growing digital asset space, and notice I, I, I use the broad term digital asset space, whether it's crypto or blockchain enabled or token based, uh, a number of different kind of digital asset related value transfer mechanisms. So many of these organizations and fintech companies are popping up, increased activity there, many of whom are seen as high compliance risk, but quite frankly, many of whom 
want to do the right thing, especially in emerging markets where they're just leapfrogging the traditional methodology for, for banking. Um, and the, that friction between them and regulators saying, wait a second, who are you? What kind of entity are you? What kind of activities are you undertaking? So we looked at that friction. We said, wait a second, what if we take a modern approach to uh, financial crimes compliance for the digital asset community? And, it, and we, instead of said entity type or jurisdiction based, we, we did it on activities and practices. Mm-hmm. If you are issuing value, if you are storing value, or if you're transferring value or providing liquidity, you are a covered entity for AML purposes. What does that mean? You have these five pillars of an AML uh, program. You have your sanctions and global wash screening. Here's how you do that. Here's mechanisms to do that. Here's how you run your KYC and and those elements. And so it's a guidebook. It's a rule book that effectively, and we've created as a created common stock. So wherever you sit, doesn't matter if you're U.S. or someplace else. Doesn't matter where you sit, what jurisdiction, what regulatory authority is over you, and it doesn't matter what kind of entity you are. You could be a small, medium enterprise. You could be a fintech. You could be a deposit institution. But if you're undertaking one or more of those activities, you would, in fact, be, by regulatory terms, covered for AML. And here's what your obligations are. And at this point, and we previewed this with a number of the U.S. regulators, some foreign regulators, they're liking what they see. It's sector-based, so it's a consortium of over 100 fintech companies and crypto exchanges and banks and and non-bank entities opining on this Creative Commons document to say, look, this is a a private sector-led initiative to say, here's a inclusion-based compliance framework. So sort of like a Wolfsburg thing, but much lengthier. (laughs) Correct. And the whole idea is to say, look, guys, we now live in a world where finance and commerce is jurisdictionless. Regulation has to comport to that. Two, it has to be inclusion-minded, not exclusion-minded. And three, some of this technology actually uh, helps us with auditability and transparency and security. Let's leverage that and come into the more modern economy. I know we're all struggling with the travel restrictions and everything going on as we, as we record this. And I know you can't know for sure. Ballpark, though, sometime before the fall of 2020, do you think this will be complete absolutely. and available? No, absolutely. So we have uh, one, it's Creative Commons. So we welcome anyone that wants to join that working group. And we have uh, every two weeks a, uh, a virtual meeting. Okay. Uh, sometimes there's 10 people. Sometimes there's over 100. Um, so anyone can join that. Uh, one can find it on uh, our website, finclusive.com. Uh, it's under products called The Rulebook. And there's a uh, open source document that folks can look at and join the working group. Great. Um, so invite everyone. We'll and push then, that out too on our site for wonderful. folks too. And uh, so would th- this will only be robust and strong when you have a diverse set of opinions attaching themselves to this and, and helping it. And then the idea is to continue to push our outreach with U.S. and global regulators with the Hill as they look at modernization of BSA and then with global uh, uh, standard setters like the FD, FATF and, and, the, and the bank and the fund. Right. Amit Sharma, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, as I said, uh, we will push this out. I think uh, we'll probably be back to you with uh, some interviews on updates and, uh, and that sort of thing, because the key, I think, is everybody in the financial sector wants to provide access wherever they can. And now that we're all talking about it, maybe we can actually get it done. I think so. Tide has changed. Thanks for having me. We have certainly heard from uh, banking regulators, not only in the States, but globally, they've talked about encouraging innovation. And I think it's very clear from listening to Amit discuss Finclusive that his company takes that to heart. You know, we're, we're in a digital age 
And obviously, they're creating something that is addressing a global need. And that need, as we know, is financial access and support for those that are least able to uh, make their own case sometimes for the importance of uh, giving them access to the to the economic system. The other part of the conversation that I want everybody to uh, pay attention to and get engaged is the offer uh, that Ahmed has regarding the rule book that they're creating. It's an open source document. It's on finclusive.com. And this rule book being created by experts around the globe uh, will be a, a great tool for those that are trying to figure out how do we deal with all the variety of compliance issues that, that exist out there? So what I would say is, in addition to what we've talked about uh, regarding access, get involved, get engaged. Jump on to finclusive.com and give us your comments on the rulebook. This is John Byrne for AML Conversations. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.